You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning to everybody. We're continuing our series, uh, four-week series on Psalm 119. Last week, we did an introduction to really a sort of a larger aerial view on our understanding of the Bible and the importance of the Bible in the Christian life for faith and practice. And today, the idea is now to turn our, our attention directly to Psalm 119. Before we do that, uh, let, me, let me begin us with a word of prayer and give our, our time to the Lord. Our Father, we're grateful that you give us the opportunity in, in your mercies to take time to study your word. It is a great gift, Lord, and a real pleasure and delight to do so. And I pray this morning as we engage Psalm 119 that you, by the power of your spirit, would open our minds and our hearts to perceive what it is that you have to teach us from this long and noble and very important psalm uh, in, in your word. And we give this to you in hope and in thanksgiving. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you're there in your, if you're in the car, don't do this. But if you're in your living room or you're somewhere else, pull out a Bible and find Psalm 119, uh, which is, as most of you know, the longest chapter in all of the Bible, certainly the longest psalm. Um, And it's a psalm that has a really long and fascinating reception in the history of the church. I I have a three-volume set by the Puritan Thomas Watson on my shelf at home where three large volumes of sermonic and commentary reflection on Psalm 119. So, I mean, that's a lot of reflection on Psalm 119. This morning, I actually spent some time in St. Augustine's uh, sermons or his, 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 uh, his narrations on the Psalms and found, this, found his, his comments on Psalm 119, which is sort of later in his large collection. It's some of the largest body of, of Augustine's writings are on the Psalms. And, and this is what he says about Psalm 119. I think he's speaking a little tongue-in-cheek here. But he says, um, With the Lord's gracious help, I have expounded as best I could all the other Psalms contained in the book, which, as we all know, is by the church's custom called the Psalter. So here you have Augustine with a kind of an intentional uh, purpose, moving through, through all of the Psalms. He didn't do it chronologically, so he moved around some. But he's saying here that he left Psalm 119 um, as the last of the Psalms that he was going to engage through either sermons or in, in narration, dictation, to those who were keeping notes for him. And he says, I didn't do this just because it's long, although I think there's probably part of the story is that it is long and would take him a long time. But but this is what he said. I didn't I didn't put this off primarily because of its formidable length, as much as I did because of its profundity, which few people can really fathom, he says. Um, he, he ends up saying this the last line here the plainer the psalm seems the more profound does it appear to me, so much that I cannot even demonstrate in words how profound it is. So this is Augustine, who without doubt is one of the more towering intellects and theological minds, at least of the Western intellectual and theological tradition. This is Augustine who is saying um, that Psalm 119, though it seems somewhat plain on the surface, the more that he began to engage it, he realized how profound it actually is. 
and how he was going to how he, how he knew he would have to struggle to find the language necessary to describe and engage its profundity. So that's a tall order, I think, for us over a three-week period to think through this. I'm, I'm going to be very selective with Psalm 119. I won't even pretend to tell you on the front end that we're going to make our way through the whole psalm. That, 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 that will not happen. Um, but I do want to first sort of set an understanding of the psalm in some level from a, from a kind of macro view. And if you see Psalm 119 in your Bible, you'll notice that it has these various um, paragraphs or stanzas, might be the technical term that's often used in in biblical poetry, um, that have Hebrew letters that are written above them. So, for example, uh, right above Psalm 119.1, you see the word Aleph. Um, Right above Psalm 119, verse 9, you see the word uh, Beit. And if you keep going, you see Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion all the way through the Hebrew alphabet to the last stanza, which, are, um, Psalm, which is Psalm 119, 169, that's the verse, through 176, is the Tav. Um, so for those of you who have maybe heard the Hebrew alphabet before, A to Z in English is in Hebrew, Aleph to Tav. And the whole of the psalm, Psalm 119, is this beautifully constructed poem that's built as an acrostic moving through of the Hebrew alphabet so that, and if I brought my Hebrew Bible, I could maybe show it up to you in picture form, but so that when you look at Psalm 119 in the Hebrew alphabet, verses 1 through 8, I could see it in my mind's eye here, verses 1 through 8, you can follow the line down the right side of the page and you would see Aleph, 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 Aleph beginning each line through Psalm 119. And then when you move to verse 9, then you begin to see Bait, 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 Bait. And then when you move on, Gimel, 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 all the way through to Tav. So Psalm 119 is a carefully constructed poem built around its acrostic feature. And there are other acrostics, by the way, in the Bible. It's worth sort of, we'll set it to the side. But other places where you see this literary feature or literary dynamic at play. And I think it causes us some pause or at least encourages us to step back and say, well, what's the, what's the purpose or the thought process behind Psalm 119 as an acrostic? And I, I you know, I, I don't want to reduce it. I think I'm not going to seal this, this question off, but let me just give you maybe a provisional answer to the significance of Psalm 119 coming to us in acrostic form. And I think it has something to say about um, the subject matter of Psalm 119 uh, having to do with what it means to be complete, something that's comprehensive. When we want to use that idiom, even in English, we'll say that's the A to Z of the matter. It covers the whole thing, the whole alphabet. And here you have Psalm 119 with what it's going to be talking about. And we know, so I don't bury the lead, Psalm 119 is engaging the topic of God's Torah, or maybe more broadly conceived, God's Word. We'll come back to that in a second. So here you have the actual form, the material form of the poem itself, telling you that the subject matter that it's dealing with is is engaging the comprehensive thing by which reality in its totality is best understood. That's a huge claim. The A to Z of the matter, the Aleph to Tav of the matter, 
of what Psalm 19 is engaging is that which is complete, it's all-encompassing, it's comprehensive, it's really the path toward maturity and wholeness. So the very form of the poem itself as an acrostic, A to Z, Aleph to Tav, tells us that what we are engaging here in poetic form, but also on the level of the substance of what the poetry is in service of, what we are engaging here, is about as important a thing as the Bible can speak about. Namely, God's speech to his people. What does it mean that God has spoken? That he has revealed? That he's pulled back, really, the curtain of eternity and given to us in the form of human language his own self in words so that we can know who he is and what it is that he wishes from us. So the Aleph to the Tav of the matter here is what we're dealing with in Psalm 119. And if you see what Psalm 119 is about, I mean, we could just read verse 1 and we're going to know where we're going through this whole psalm. It's a psalm that's focused on the law of the Lord. Blessed are those, verse 1, whose way is blameless. Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. And I know here that this can immediately get us tripped up on one level. When we use the language here, Torah, Adonai, law of the Lord, what is it that we're referring to here when we talk about the Torah or the law? Because I think sort of left in our own devices, we would tend to associate mentally law with something that's juridical primarily. These are legal stipulations. This is the list of do's and don'ts that you might find, for example, in a book like Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Buried in Numbers or there in Exodus. Do this, don't do that, uh, walk in this way. How one adjudicates legal issues within the life of the community and how one also understands the moral path in, in which to walk. And I would want to say that Torah or law here certainly has those juridical and those moral issues at play underneath this umbrella term. But I want to encourage us not to reduce Torah or law of the Lord to its juridical or its legal or its moral functions. Rather, I think we want to understand the word and the concept of Torah here more broadly in a sense of God's revealed self, God's revealed will, or maybe in terms that are more familiar with us in the Protestant world, and rightly so, God's word. It's interesting, I think, to even see the book of Psalms itself, and many of you have heard me talk about this before, but the book of Psalms itself is structured and shaped in a five-book structured pattern. So you have book one in the Psalms, book two, book three, all the way to book five, so that the material shape of the book of Psalms is mirroring and mimicking the Torah, which are the five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So even the book of Psalms is understood in its material canonical shape and form as a five-book structure. It's mirroring and mimicking the Torah such that the logical and I think right conclusion is the Psalms are not merely human words to God, but the Psalms themselves are Torah. They're God's instruction. They're God's words, God's revealed pattern of what it is to live into his very life and to think God's thoughts after him. So Torah as a concept in the Old Testament is like a flower that buds in such a way to encompass 
All that we have within the Bible, from legal stipulations and moral stipulations, to poetry, to prophetic words as well, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, all of this can in some sense function underneath the umbrella of Torah, namely God's instruction, God's word. So what is Psalm 119 about? Psalm 119 is an invitation into the very life-giving word of God himself. Because we know what the character of God is and the means by which God the Father engages the world. He does so by the effective power of his word through the agency of the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They were formless and void. And God spoke and the world came into existence. You have the word and the spirit and the Father all at work within creation itself indicating for us where life And the source of life is to be found. Life is found in the word. This is why John 1 will talk about Jesus in terms of word and light. He is the light, the countenance of God's face shining into the world that gives life to existence. Only darkness, there is no life. When God shines his face on the created world, everything comes to life. So Psalm 119 is wanting you to know that the A to Z of the thing, the Aleph to Tav of the thing, the way in which really reality is to be understood and framed for those who are followers of Israel's God is through his life-giving word. His word is where life is. Now this long psalm here focuses on what some, namely a a scholar named Krauss, who I've leaned on a lot for this talk, Krauss has called um, Psalm 119 as revealing what what he refers to as a Torah or a word piety. The value of God's word is embraced in Psalm 119 from beginning to end. And there's an understanding that love for God, the love of God, stems from uh, the word itself. The value of God's word and the word itself uh, uh, propelling us into a life of God's love. So Psalm 119 from beginning to end understands the value and the effect of God's word. And here here are three categories that you might see weaving their way through Psalm 119, again, on this macro level. We see, number one, that Psalm 119 understands God's word to be the highest good. Psalm 119, verse 72, if you have it there in your living rooms, not on the highway, says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Um, Psalm 19 that we talked about last week, it's more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. God's Torah, God's instruction, God's word given to us in the pages of the Holy Bible that we have the privilege to carry around in our world, in the backseat of our cars. The psalmist wants you to know that is the highest good that God has given you materially in this world is his word. I've mentioned this to some of you before in different contexts, but one of the scenes that I so enjoy in The Fiddler on the Roof, which I think is streaming right now free on Amazon, one of the scenes that I enjoy so much in Fiddler on the Roof is when Raptavia is throwing the corn and the feed around in his barn to his chickens and his donkeys, and he's singing, if I were a rich man, I wouldn't have to do all of this, and it's a fun, kind of happy-go-lucky song. And then at one point in time, Raptavia sits down 
gets very pensive and reflective. And he says, and the greatest gift of all, if I were a rich man, would be all the time that I would have to go sit with the rabbis in the synagogue and do nothing but examine and engage God's, God's Torah, God's word. It's the highest good. It's more to be desired than gold or silver. Secondly, Psalm 119 understands God's word, God's Torah, God's instruction to be the essence of all that is reliable and lasting. And frankly, it's this point here that's propelled me personally to think about Psalm 119 in this class that we're doing, in the dean's class, and really more more broadly and generally in in our current cultural moment. What is it that is reliable What is it that we can lean on for truth to to properly correct us and to guide us into the right path, the true path? What What is it that's really lasting in a world that's so ephemeral on the cultural and political and the social dynamics of our world that seem to be moving at lightning paces, at a lightning pace, and we feel this? within our community, we feel it within ourselves, we feel it every time we turn on whatever media device you have. What's reliable and lasting? And Psalm 119 wants you to know without any clearing of the throat, God's word is reliable and lasting. When you feel like you're on the high seas of misinformation within our world, Psalm 119 wants you to know, turn to God's word. This is reliable and this is lasting. And the third thing that Psalm 119 emphasizes is that God's word is salvific. It leads to salvation. It has the power to save. And it actually is that which gives life. Psalm 119 verse verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The opening of the eyes the making of deaf ears now able to hear. It's God's word that's the instrument by which those who are deaf and blind are now able to see and to hear. And by the way, that is a theme that works its way throughout the Bible, especially in a book like Isaiah. It's God's word that comes to his people, Isaiah chapter 40, that opens ears and opens eyes and releases those who are in bondage. It gives life. So think about this from the standpoint of God being our creator and our redeemer. It's God's word that he spoke that brings the world from nothingness into somethingness. God's creative power is made effective by his word. And God also redeems us by the effective power of his word now made manifest in Jesus Christ. We cannot speak about God's word or God's Torah or his instruction apart from talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's why the word, the law, the Torah, emanates in the Old Testament from God's own being. It's a gift and an extension of God's own self, his very essence to us through the medium of the word, of the Torah, of God's own self-expression and self-will. And this is why I think John chapter 1 that we've reflected on a lot here in this church, but John 1, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was the light of men coming in to overwhelm the darkness. Where's all that coming from? It's coming from this understanding in the Old Testament itself that God's Word, His Torah, 
emanates from God's own being. It's his gift to the world. So when we think about the Bible as the instrument through which God delivers his word to us, namely the person of his son, we're talking about stuff here that really is, that centers around the very basic fabric of all existence. How is the world here and how am I redeemed? Through the emanation of God's word, of God's own being through, through the word. We see this as well um, in Psalm 119, that the righteous are those who are marked by a desire for God's word. They want God's word. Look at Psalm 119, verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your path. Teach me your law. Put false ways away from me and graciously teach me your law. Or as Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The righteous person, according to Psalm 119, is not one, by the way, who understands and has the resources within himself or herself to make God's law happen. They have no resources for that. But they are the person who has been unleashed by the gift of God's grace and the power of God's spirit to turn themselves out, to turn outside of themselves to God in anticipation that he would speak again to them. In you, O Lord, is life, and your words are the means to that very thing. So how are the righteous who desire God's word described in, um, in Psalm 119? They're described this way. Number one, the righteous do not forget God's word. Forgetting is the opposite in the Old Testament of remembering. To remember is to actively participate in God's very life. To forget is to move away from God's path to a path of destruction. The righteous attend themselves to God's word. Their ears are tuned in. They do not, number two, retreat from God's word. Number three, they keep it and they walk in it. Number four, they love God's word. There's an affection that's attached to God's word. That's not just an intellectual assent, but there's an actual affection that's there. And number five, we see that those who are righteous find joy and pleasure in the study of God's word. So with all of that said, it's kind of preamble. Let me take a few minutes here, just five or so, to look at the first few verses of Psalm 118. I mean 119. And here are what the first few verses say, the Aleph section, the A section, we might say, of Psalm 119. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And for those of you who have spent a lot of time in the Psalms, and I know many of you have, that verse should immediately kind of pique your curiosity. Blessed are those who, whose way is blameless. Eshrei is the Hebrew term there. It's the first word of the Psalms. Psalm 1-1, how blessed, Eshrei Ha'ish, how blessed is the man who does not walk or stand or sit with the ungodly, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. There is meant to be a link here between Psalm 119 verse 1 and Psalm 1 verse 1. How blessed, how happy, These are the conditions, the psalmist is telling you, for human flourishing. This is the fertile soil for a life that's blessed by God. It's the location. 
where joy and happiness can flourish. Do you want to know the place where you can be fully human, really blessed, to know true joy and happiness? Well, Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 want you to know the fertile soil for human happiness is the place where God's word is to be found. I was reading, I mentioned this to you, reading St. Augustine on Psalm 1. This is one of, and I wanted to read more to you, but I didn't want to lose you. No, but here's, here's a quote from Augustine on Psalm 1, verse 1. Is there anyone? Has there ever been anyone? Will there ever be anyone who does not want to be happy? I was reading, this is pre-COVID. But a news piece came out about Yale University, and apparently Yale University recorded its largest enro- single enrollment in a class in the university's long history. And the title of the course was Happiness. The question about happiness is a question that's been, frankly, at the core of the Western tradition, moving all the way back to Aristotle and beyond. What does it mean to truly and genuinely be happy? How does one live a life well that results in a happy existence? And the Psalms are replete with that kind of basic human question. How is one happy? Everyone is pursuing that kind of question, the answer to that question in their life in some way. And that's why Augustine says, you won't meet anyone who doesn't want to be happy. But then he goes on to say that few people know how to really find happiness. As uh, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, we so hedonistically look after happiness that when we stumble upon it, we tend to pass right by it, not knowing that we've even seen it face to face. So who are happy? Who are blessed? Who know in the terms of the ironic blessing, the smiling face of God? Those whose way is blameless, and how is it marked by blamelessness? They seek to walk in the way of the Lord. And you see through this psalm here, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Blessed are those who seek him with their whole heart. So you see something here about the promise that's given to those who seek after God's word. They are blessed. You see something here about the piety of those who are seeking after God's word. They seek him with their whole heart. And that language there, with all of their heart, should, I think, evoke some memory of the Shema back in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So there is a devotion here, an intense devotion. The basis of the covenant between God and his people is a loyalty to God and to God alone. And the psalmist here wants you to know that the end of Scripture is not um, the, 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 the scratching of your intellectual curiosities or the fact that people might want to appear theologically sophisticated or smart, uh, being able to kind of hold their own in these kinds of conversations on matters pertaining to the Bible and the faith at the next cocktail party. The psalmist says that has nothing to do with what the end is of the love of the engagement and the study of God's word because God's word is a conduit to a life lived in the presence of God himself. God is the end. 
The enjoyment of God is the end. The worship of God is the end. And the glorification of God is the end of the study of the Bible. The Bible is the means by which we come into that kind of lived presence. And that's the Torah piety that I think we're talking about here in Psalm 119. With all of their heart, intense devotion, with all of our might. And then you see in verse 5, the plea that comes along with this Torah piety. And I love this plea. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Here you see the psalmist who's saying that it's not within his own personal resources to have this kind of Torah piety. It requires, if I can use the language that's used a lot around here, the Advent, and rightly so, it requires a life of repentance, a life of prayer that, that uh, resonates with the, with the substance and the content of verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast. That's never a one-and-done prayer in keeping your statutes. Oh, that you would draw me again and again to the ancient path, knowing that if left on autopilot, given the fact that I am a sinner who is, who is confined to the realities of my body, recognizing that if I'm left on my, to my own devices, I will again and again go toward my own path. And here the prayer of the psalmist is, the, the, the plea is, oh, that we may be steadfast, in turning again to your law. And what's the result? The result is the praise of God, not the self. Not to our name, O Lord, not to our name, but to your name alone be the idea. I mean, be the praise, the glory. So what's the big theme here that we have in these first few verses? And I wanted to spend more time, but my time is fleeting. Let me read to you this quote from Krauss. He says this, but the constancy of obedience that you see here um, that's, the, that's the identification of the blessed one, the prayer, the plea for steadfastness. Krauss says the constancy of obedience is not an innate ability of the pious person. He prays for the right attitude toward Yahweh's ordinances and with a thankful heart wants to be instructed. Now we, we're going to have to think about some of these things in larger um, terms shaped by the person and work of Jesus. We'll, we will do that more as we move forward. But, but I wanted to, to conclude with one thing here. This Torah piety, this, this God's word piety that the psalmist is talking about, is a piety that recognizes that the right attitude toward God's word and a thankful heart for God's word necessitates God's actions and movement toward us. And this is why St. Augustine and our own sort of saint that we, <laughs> we tend to rehearse a lot around here, Thomas Cranmer, they both played from the same playbook. I think Cranmer actually is borrowing from Augustine. But when they raised the question, how do we read the Bible faithfully and avoid error? How do we keep from going off the track in reading the Bible and reading it faithfully? Or maybe put in other terms, what kind of reader of the Bible does the Bible itself anticipate? Both Augustine and Cranmer in their own way say, the person who reads Scripture well and the person that the Scriptures anticipate are those who have humble hearts, open to the instruction that God has for us, coming to God's Word with open hands saying, I want to be instructed by what you have to say to me here because what you have to say to me here is, the, is better than any of the best thoughts that I can construct. 
That's why Mark Twain famously said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me. The kind of openness to the word, to ask that God would take his word and shape our minds and our hearts so that we can be instructed in his paths, not as a reference at an end point to ourselves, but for the glorification of him and his enjoyment. That's the kind of Torah piety or word of God piety that Psalm 119 lays out for us. And Psalm 119 wants you to know that's the key to happiness in this world and, more importantly, in the world to come. So, Lord, we give this to you, asking, O Father, that you would plant that in our hearts and our minds by the power of your Spirit, that you would draw us into that kind of affection, Lord, and and curiosity about your word so that we would know your path and want to walk in it for your glory because of what you have done for us in Jesus. And we give this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.